2: Greetings and God bless. Welcome to another episode of Pastor Mike, Dynamic Voices for a Diverse Church, powered by The Witness, a Black Christian collective. I am your host, Tyler Burns. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at BurnsClan. Please follow at your own risk. And joining me today is not Dr. Jamar Tisby. I boxed him out for this. I wanted this interview all to myself. I'm kidding. Jamar had a scheduling conflict. He could not make it today. And he is going to be kicking himself because we have a special, special guest joining us today. We have Mr. Will Jawando, who is with us. He is an attorney, an activist, a community leader. He's been featured in so many different publications. Um, He's been called by uh, Congressman, the late great Congressman uh, John Lewis, as the progressive leader that we need. And most famously, he served as a staffer in the Obama Senate and White House. And he is the author of this book, My Seven Black Fathers, Will Jawando, sir, thank you so much for joining us here on Pastor Mike.
1: It's great to be with you, Tyler. Thanks for having me, and thanks for your ministry, man. Really appreciate it, all of you. You know,
2: I, I, outside of doing this, am a pastor, and this year for Father's Day, my church uh, got me a little basket. We have, uh, my wife and I have two young children, four-year-old daughter and a three-year-old son. And they got me a little special basket for Father's Day. You know, the black church is so big on honoring and Mm -hmm. uh, loving leaders. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And um, so so I I opened this bag as I'm getting ready to leave the church because in the middle, they gave it to me. They surprised me with it in the middle of church. I have to preach still. And so afterwards we're headed home and I open up this uh, basket and and I see a travel pillow, which they know I travel so much. I see a gift card to my favorite coffee shop. And then I see this book, (laughs) My Seven Black Fathers. And I remember I looked at it and knowing your name politically, I said, I know this is going to be good, but I have to be honest with you. I was surprised at the title. I was surprised at the title. You talking about fatherhood and family and mentorship what made you talk about seven black fathers instead of all the other things you could have talked about politically, socially, racially? You kind of encompassed all of it here. But why fatherhood and mentorship?
1: Yeah, well, it's, it, first, I'm honored that someone had the foresight in, in the uh, initiative to put my book in your in that great basket of things. And I'm, I'm so glad you got got to have it and, and, and read it and, and uh, interact with it. You know, uh, you're right you know, we could all write a lot of things about a lot of different things, but this book is really a love letter to black men and boys. Uh, it's a Mm. testament to the power of these relationships, uh, and told through the story of my life. Um, you know, these, these men, and obviously there were many others, my mother, my wife, other mentors, aunts and uncles who stepped in and helped keep me on track. But These relationships in particular at a time when I didn't have a relationship with my biological father really literally saved my life. And I wanted to pay homage to that. I wanted to uh, lay to waste the stereotype and trope of the absent black father. Uh, There's so much said about who we are, not about not by us and for us. Um, And I felt like this was a unique way and an important space to tell a story that hopefully will relate to everybody but that is centered in the power of these Black male relationships to save and change lives in the midst of a systemic racism and discrimination and the like. So I, I think it's an important story.
2: I think what you have said about it being a love letter to Black men and fathers and boys is so powerful and subversive because, as you mentioned, there are so many tropes about Black fatherhood or fatherlessness. And I think it has led to some of us even stepping away from the from the topic of fatherhood mm. and stepping away from addressing it in full in our ministries or our work or um our activism simply because we're afraid of of falling into or stumbling into that trope. Yeah. Was that something that you actively thought about this whole fatherless I'm fatherless idea? How, were you actively thinking about that as you as you put this book together?
1: I was and you know I was I was very conscious of a couple of things. One was look in order to talk about, in order to have seven black fathers, obviously I'm a human being. I have one biological father mm-hmm. uh, and the way the book is structured, there's an introduction in seven chapters and each father is one chapter. My biological father, Ola Yinka Jawando is the last chapter. My stepfather, Joseph Jacob is the first, they are the bookends. Mm-hmm. And um, but I would not have uh, probably needed so urgently the interaction from my other seven, my other black fathers, if I wasn't uh, estranged from my biological father early on in life, you know, and Mm. and he was in the house from until I was six years old, I called him an absent presence. Um, But we just didn't have a connection. And so I, I really was conscious of both the fact that I needed these relationships, because I didn't have the interaction with my father early on, but also that they were all different, and they were all very powerful. And They all gave me different things and that they literally were fathering me. I think that was another thing to be conscious about is expanding the definition. Right. I think we have a narrow. Not only are we scared to talk about it, because if we have an absent father, if we have something that went, you know, not ideally, we also think about it very narrowly. So I wanted to expand that definition, but also talk about all the great things in ways that in a call to action sort of way that we can engage with each other in the midst of all that's going on in our community.
2: Can you talk about this study that was done on the power of having mentorship figures or father figures in the lives of black children when they have the same exact life experience as uh, white young men and white boys? Can you talk about that study that apparently you were a part of that study, is that right?
1: I was, yeah, and uh, everyone born in this country between 1978 and 1983 was in this study every child there were 20 million of us born in that window in that five-year period Um, and this study looked at in a longitudinal way all the information you know you learn from the census so where are these kids born Uh, what's the level of education of their parents what's their family composition one parent two-parent household all those things you learn from the census And match that up with IRS data. So what were these families making? What was their gross income? And then looked at them over time, 35, 40 years. So these children, where are they now? And Mm. one of the things it showed a lot of things you can imagine with that big of a data set, it showed a lot. (laughs) But one of the major, you know, really uh, kind of overwhelming stats from this uh, research project was in ninety nine percent of census tracts. Black boys and white boys from the same neighborhood with the same relative backgrounds, you know, one parent, two parent household, same level of income, same level of education. So all the excuses we hear for why some people do well and others don't right. uh, were controlled for these black boys and white boys had wide earnings gaps 40 years later. And the only thing different was their race. Um, and. Ooh. And so I think it it put a fine point. It was devastating in the sense that that's true in 99 percent of the country. There were these one percent census tracts uh, of which I grew up outside of and my mother worked in uh, in Silver Spring, Maryland, where there that was not true, where what we would hope to see were black boys and white boys from the same neighborhood, same income when they're born, same family structure are doing similarly well 40 years later. And that was only true in one percent. And I called them these black boys safe zones. And I grew up outside of one and my mother worked in one. And one of the statistically significant uh, features of these zip codes was that they had a larger percentage of working class black fathers in them. So not Mm -hmm. the fathers of the children themselves, but just these men were present. And one of the ways I realized how to frame my book was that I realized I had met four of my seven black fathers in this zip code. Hmm. um and so i benefited literally uh from being around more of these men you know my mom's coworker an it guy a coach a teacher these aren't these are men that were just there uh, in the community um and literally saved my life and so i think there's a lot in that study um but it it lays to, it it in and of itself kind of lays to waste this idea that you know there's something inherently wrong with black families or black fathers yes. or children now that doesn't mean there aren't systems and structures that make it harder to be yes. a black father. You know, the mass incarceration, for example. Um, uh, you know, discrimination in the workplace and home ownership, education systems. Go down the list, but it really also on the other side shows the power of these relationships. That even in the midst of all those things, when black men engage with boys and they engage with each other, it can have a power to to overcome some of those systemic inequities and that's the story i'm trying to tell And another balancing thing i was very aware of because this isn't a pull yourself by your bootstraps right this right I, you know i did it and you can do it too no it's right we have to fix the systems and structures but despite that we there's something we can do too um and and that was my story and that's, that's what i try to tell
2: i love how you walked two tightropes that I think are very difficult. I think that tightrope of not being a pull yourself up by your own bootstrap story, but also being this clarion call for how important we are in the lives of the boys and and the young men in our community. That's a tricky tightrope to walk in and of itself. Mm -hmm. But then I think the, the second thing that I found striking is the range of Black men that you profiled. Right. And I think there's this level of, it is heroic what they have done in your life, but they weren't all the same type of Black right. man. Right. You know, there's they're not all the same stereotypical sitcom figure. They're right. not all the same. I mean, you have everyone from President Obama to, you know, some of your teachers to someone introducing you to art. You know, you're just hearing a lot of different types of black men. Can you talk about that range? Because again, that's another trope, right? So the trope of, oh, we're all fatherless and, you know, everything's broken down because of, of, of internal community pathology. But then there's this other trope of, well, all black men are like this.
1: And you yeah. kind of show a wide range. I was, that was another thing that fortunately, my life experience lent itself to that point that these men are all very different. None of them are perfect. You know, you have a, everything from a president uh, to, you know, to an IT manager at my mom's job, who's a who's a f- immigrant from Nigeria, Dean Samwuya, who takes me on my first trip to my father's homeland to Jay Fletcher, the, wow. the openly gay black reporter who exposes mm-hmm. me to the arts and in, in uh, mm-hmm. so many things that I wouldn't have seen the diversity of who black men and black people are. Um, you know, Wayne Holmes, the who, who in and of himself is an enigma, you know, he's the six six offensive <laughs> <lineman, laughs> yes. all American football player, but who's also a, a gospel singer um, and mm. a, uh, you know, just a, a great, great youth pastor and coach and uh, who has a you know, huge role. My stepfather, who's a someone who doesn't have a college degree, is a printer by trade, who is the first black man to give me attention my fourth grade math teacher, Mr. Williams, who teaches me how to tie a tie and helps me deal with bullying, um, all of them different. Um, all of the, re- the t- length of time that I knew them was different, right? And when I met yes, them, that's yes, the other point yes. here is, you know, I know Mr. Williams in fourth grade for nine months. I never learned his first name until I'm researching this book 30 years later. Uh, but he had a huge impact on my life. I meet President Obama when I'm in my mid-20s, trying to figure out, how to balance being a father, a husband um, and a public policy professional and, and to help to help change the world. And he's really helpful in that stage of my development. So par- part of the point is to show the diversity of who we are to, you know, counter all the lies that have been told and continue to be told about us in the single narratives, but also to signal to ourselves. It's an internal in an external conversation and it's internal in the way that you are worthy, you are enough. You have mm. something to give. You have something yes, to sir. offer. Each of us does, um, and it could be in a moment or it could be over a lifetime. But we all have something to give and to and worthy to receive.
2: You know, I have to tell you when I saw that on the uh, Tamron Hall show when she brought out Mister Holmes, I believe yeah. it was. Yeah. Um, okay. He is, he towered over you. <laughs> I was not prepared for that, yeah, you know? Yeah, yeah. It was like, wow, you know, these, this range of black men, but you talked about Mr. Williams and it made me think when I was watching that interview, yeah. um, I believe he was the one who taught you how to tie a tie. Yep. And, you know, he, he's, he's also, that was his, his second career. That was not his primary career. Yeah. Um, it made me think back and I have to be honest with you. I, it struck me. I don't think I ever had a a black man as a teacher.
1: Right.
2: I don't think I ever had a black male teacher.
1: Yeah.
2: And I know I had a black woman who was a teacher. I think one, maybe two. Um. But I never had a black man as a teacher. Yeah. When you yeah. talk about what that does to a child when a black man is able to come alongside in that authority position but also in a mentorship way and guide and teach life skills. Because one of the things I know about us as a community is that we never just do the thing we're asked to do. Right. We always yeah. do more than that. right? right. We always right. we always add a little bit of of ourselves into that because we see more of what we can do. Can you talk about what that representation means to, to black, to young black men?
1: Well, it's uh, it's transformative, Um You know, you're not alone, unfortunately. It's one of the calls to action that I put forth in this book as well is that not only those relationships powerful and are my seven black fathers did this for me, they are doing it for young men and women in our community across the country. And we need to enable more of these relationships through Mm -hmm. personal interactions, committing ourselves to do that, but also programmatically in policy, you know. Black male teachers are only two percent of the teaching workforce. Two percent. So Mr. Williams and other black male teachers and educators wow. that are out there, they're literally unicorns. They are they are something that are rarely seen. And um, and he was my only one. The only one I would have uh, in class. And uh, when he comes in, he's almost uh, like a superhero type figure. You know, he comes in with his yes. suit and tie and his briefcase writes his name on the board and you know all of us are like who is this guy like first black person man i ever saw wear a suit and tie every day hmm. um, you know not going to church or not going to a special occasion but every day and he just was mythic he looked like morgan freeman you know he had these these beauty marks and brown skin the little bush you know a young morgan freeman he came in and wow. he just and he was just like we were like who is this guy and we we had to listen to what he had to say And he came at a time where data and research also shows that if when black children have a black teacher and in the elementary years, you know, second, third, fourth or fifth grade, they are going to have better grades in middle and high school. You know, and so he comes at a time before I've I've been hardened and I've shut down. And I've, I've I've begun to completely believe the lies that have been told about me. I go to I go to five schools before I'm in seventh grade. I'm pushed around, uh, you know, recommended for special education, recommended to be on on Ritalin uh, and other drugs. And my mother, thankfully, advocates for me and doesn't allow that to happen. But I I've had a really rocky educational journey both before and after Mr. Williams. But he was this oasis um, that spoke life and gave me confidence. And not just me, my classmates taught us to work together, taught us about our inherent value. And uh, we need to make sure if you're a principal, if you're a superintendent, if you're a a, a resident, you need to be advocating for programs and policies that recruit, retain, uh, and compensate Black male teachers because they are lifesavers in the classroom. And uh, Black women teachers have a similar effect. But for Black boys in particular, Black male teachers uh, have a dramatic impact on their future success.
2: How has the um writing of this book caused you to to ponder your origin story? Because I know you talked about, again, one one of your your seven black fathers coming and 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 taking you back home. Mm. Right. How has it caused you to ponder your origin story? What was that trip home like for you? Um and what was it like for you to engage with culture in a way now knowing some of the things that you knew at that point.
1: Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting because, you know, we all have an origin story. And as Black people in this country, uh, it, it, it can be complicated. Um, yes. And, you know, whether we are the sons or daughters of those who are brought here through the transatlantic slave trade, or we are the son or daughter of Black immigrants who migrated here for in search of opportunity like my father, yes. leave, leaving a war torn Nigeria in the early 70s to study. Um, we all have a. The same roots. Right. Uh, we, we all come from the continent of Africa. There, we have all been told lies about our history and who we are um, and been intentionally dehumanized. In order to prop up the system that has built this country. And and so I as and I was also biracial. So I had also my mother's white. Uh, and I grew up in black and brown communities. So I was also dealing with how to fit in, and like all kids want to do. Um, and and a big part of that without having a, a deep connection to my father's culture or really black american culture until my stepfather steps in when I'm you know 8 years old and some of my other father figure black fathers step in and so it's my origin story was is is inextricably linked to uh this book and these men because i am literally growing and developing and becoming the man i am in part through who they are what they're demonstrating and showing me and teaching yeah. me um and you know, I, my first play is, is, is seven guitars by August Wilson. Uh, you know, great Ooh. black playwright. And I get taken to Broadway to see Viola Davis in the mid nineties before anyone knew who she was in that play by Jay, by one of my black fathers. To this day, I love black theater and, and art, you know, th- so you can't disconnect it. Um, so it was wow. teaching me who I was and who I aspired to be, but also giving me context and, and skills. Um, and you know, basketball—the role of basketball, the role of the Black Church. You know, yes, you know I yes. talk about my faith journey in this book, um, and then certainly my connection to my ancestral uh, land of my father, going to Nigeria, and and a longing for that connection, which I think is representative of a longing that all Black people have, whether they know it or not, to have deep connection to our history and our roots.
2: Well, you mentioned it, and it would be remiss of us not to even bring it up, but I mean, you talk about the Black church in this book and, and you know, your own faith journey, and the Black church has been, in many people's eyes, matriarchal mm-hmm. and, you know, kind of emphasizing Black women and centered around Black women. Talk a little bit about the importance of Black church to be a place of mentorship and really, I, I, before you even talk about that, I would love to hear you share with our audience some of that faith journey and mm-hmm. what that's been like for you and how you have now come to um, understand in retrospect some things about your faith that may have been different than before. Um, but then also, can you talk about how important it is for the black church to be um, central in playing that role in male mentorship and young black boys?
1: yeah that's a that's a big question. I mean, you know, I talk about my journey uh I grew up my mother was a you know what I call a white glove Catholic you know,
2: um, <laughs> yes, you know yes.
1: she had two two uncles, two of her older brothers she was the youngest of six were priests. They left home in Kansas at fourteen to go study at the seminary you know that's how they did it back then and uh her old her her oldest brother is, is to this day was a is still a capuchin priest and spent 30 years in Papua New Guinea as a missionary, great man, my favorite uncle, cool, the best stories. So I grew up Catholic um, in that tradition, that kind of Midwestern white Catholic tradition. And one of the downsides to that tradition is like, there's not really a lot of excitement and connection at a young age. You know, you you have to come to it later, I think, to the faith. I knew that God existed. I believed in him. But by the time I'm in my early teenage years, I don't really have a a deep connection, a relationship, a personal relationship with God, so to, to so to speak, and and I talk about how I come to that, uh, almost like my conversion, my my Saul to Paul story, um, where uh, because of my interest in a, a next door neighbor, a girl, uh, and, and, and won't God take something that you <laughs> for evil or, or, or and turn it around? Come on, God! I, I get drawn into this, uh, you know, Bible camp, and and where we go away. Uh, at James Madison University, and I really have my first experience with the Holy Spirit in a deep way Uh, and i am just brought to tears. Uh, And I I know in a corporate worship service where a woman, a black woman is preaching something I'd never seen. And I'm like, I got to investigate this further. So when I come back from that experience, I start going to church, a Baptist church, um, Mount Sinai Baptist Church here in Washington with my aunt and uncle, my stepfathers, brother and sister. Um, And I get up and start doing that from age 13 on. And uh, that, you know, that's really, I end up getting baptized at that church and starting to get involved. And I describe that in the book, um, but it's really an important part of my development because, but for my stepfather and but for his brother, they give me my authentic connection to not only a huge part of Black American identity, the Black church, but also my personal growth and connection to yes. God, um, yes. and and they mentor and guide me uh, in in my early faith journey where I'm developing my personal relationship with Christ. So um, they're inextricably linked, uh, and I think we'd be do well to remember that. And you know, with our mentorship programs, our rites of passage, and all that, uh, I think the church has has and will continue to play a big role.
2: Yeah, that was so just encouraging to read and to hear, and uh, moved me deeply um, to hear your journey. And as a pastor, and as one who is a, the son of a you know of a pastor, and the son of a black church, you know just just being just seeing how transformational it can be um, at a young age it's just so powerful.
0: pass the mic we appreciate you this episode is brought to you in part by Pittsburgh Theological Seminary Pittsburgh Theological Seminary students are grounded in faith and formed in community PTS students are preparing for ministry with Master of Divinity Master of Arts Doctor of Ministry and certificate programs begin your master's or certificate program in person or online Financial aid is available. Visit pts.edu slash admit.
2: Uh, You've been so generous with your time. I just have two more questions for you. It would be remiss of me not to ask as well um, about President Obama. I know that's going to kind of be the hook for a lot of people within this this book. I'm glad that it is kind of framed in a certain way of his advice and encouragement to you as a young man in marriage and in fatherhood, um, which was so powerful to kind of hear how he was giving you advice. You know, he was kind of sharing you, this is how you manage these, you know, these dynamics of, of new kids and, you know, loving your wife. And can you talk about his role in that development? Because I think there's this mentality that we have, of mentorship being essential for adolescent and youth ages, but not as essential when we cross over into adulthood. And as a matter of fact, one of you know, some of the most important people in my life have been my adult mentors and the people who have poured into me as a young man, father, pastor, leader. Can you talk about how important it is for that stage and how President Obama played a role in that?
1: Yeah. You know, one of the reasons the subtitle of the book is uh, the men who made me whole. Uh, you know, if I had to subtitle the subtitle, I would say, you know, on that are that helped me on my journey to wholeness because we are we are yes. on a constant journey to be whole. And yes. we we never, never stop needing mentorship, fatherhood, motherhood, guidance. Um, and it, what we get and what we need changes, but we need connection and particularly for black men, I think in our, in our relation, unfortunately for us, um, and I'm sure you can relate to this, the older we get, sometimes there's a tendency, the more disconnected we can get from each other.
2: Oh, come Um, on. Yes, sir. (laughs) Yes, sir.
1: And and so, you know, and there's a lot of reasons for that, but I I think I wanted to also just emphasize that these are ongoing and needed relationships. Also. President Obama, you know, when I meet him, he's Senator Obama. He's uh, not in the White House yet. He's a, he's a senator. He's an up and coming rising star. I, I My first meeting of him is probably when a lot of people who, who read this book has have, came to know him, when he gave this rousing speech at the Democratic National Convention yes. in 2004, Ooh. you know, where he says, you know, we're not a black America a white America. We're the United States of America. But he also said we need to eradicate the slander that a black youth with a book is acting white. Uh, Something I had experienced, but I had never heard anyone put so articulately um, in a sentence and on that stage to give voice to something that was so deeply personal to me. And I thought that no one knew. Um, And so he mentors me before I even know him. He fathers me in a way before I even meet him. I watch it through the screen and I tell people all the time, you know, these men are accessible and expand your view of who they can be and that you can be one yourself. But you can get stuff from people no matter, you can get it on YouTube, you can watch your sermon, you can get, you know, there's a lot of ways to get encouragement and we need it all. Um, And so, but I, I, I come to meet him as I'm developing and growing in my career. Um, And it's first from afar, as I'm watching him, you know, watching his example, it's important that we model and, and do the right things because we never, you never know who's watching. And then uh then more personally, when I get to work for him uh, in the Senate in a more senior role and then in the White House and certainly on the campaign and spend, you know, I talk about my journey with him as a father and interactions with him in the White House and playing basketball with him. And, yes. uh, you know, him, uh, you know, spending my first father's day with him playing basketball and playing cards and eating and hanging out. And he just was all along that way. While he modeled excellence and balancing of professional life and personal, he was most intentional, which I think is a theme through all these relationships intentionality. He was most intentional about making sure he was giving me advice and counsel about how to be a good husband and a good father Uh, at a time when, at a critical time when I'm like, when I'm working all these late hours and we're having children he was very helpful there. And I'm, and I needed that. I needed that. And uh, there weren't a lot of people to give it to me at that time in my life and I needed it.
2: Wow. Well, the last thing I I would want to uh, ask of you is, would you speak to the black men who may be listening or watching this? Because um, I know oftentimes in, in our conversations with black men, it is there's such a disconnect and an isolation and we're unlearning so many toxic things and trying to be positive examples. And the idea of being a mentor is appealing to so many of us, but may feel overwhelming. Um, what would you say to, to black men, even young black men who are seeing, I need to give back to the people around me. I need to love um, those in my vicinity and my sphere of influence. What would you say to them as an encouragement they feel overwhelmed or feel like they're not worthy or if they feel like they don't have it all together. I mean, you're you're the type of person that it seems like you just have things (laughs) set and together. And we know that the public presentation is different from the private wrestle and struggle. So can you encourage those who may be feeling a little inadequate even by hearing about these seven black fathers?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think there's it's something I'm becoming more aware of as I talk about the book more is that you know, it's very easy to take the kind of sarcastic or, you know, view that, oh, well, this, he just, he's an exceptional person. Yes. And he's, he was, you know, or he was lucky, you know, that I don't have that in my community, or I can't be that, or I've done this, or I'm not worthy of that. Um, I would, you know, as I tell every young person, when I go, you know, I'm a council member here in Montgomery County, Maryland, when I go in to schools, in the neighborhoods I grew up in, very low income. If you read the story, you'll see where I came from. Uh, I tell them I was you. I was exactly you. I was sitting there, using the same slang, you know, dated back 30 years, not wanting to be here, uh, not sure who I was, loving basketball, you know, uh, all those things, thinking about girls. I was you, and there is a path from you to where I am, and I'm still on the path, and and I would say to those young men, those young boys, those grown men, that you are worthy uh, of these relationships. And, and 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 I would also say I many of us have had them and we might not even know we've had them. We might not have been thinking about it. I, I've been challenging people to think about who are your seven. Write them down. If they're alive, contact them. If they're not alive, contact their next of kin or someone in their family. Uh, I miss Mr. Williams. I didn't get to tell him what he meant to me. Uh, he died in 2019, but I found his daughter and his grandchildren. Um, and most of these men they did not know that the ones that are alive when they heard I was writing this, they did not know the impact they had
2: mm-hmm. and
1: and that in itself proves that we all have an ability to connect. Um, we have to be think believe we're worthy of it, but also believe that we have something to offer because you do and no matter how small the act or the relate the duration of the relationship. Decide that you're going to do it, you know, whether it's a mentoring moment. Imagine if every black boy who encountered a black man or woman or on the street was told an encouraging word. Imagine about the aggregate power of Mm. that massive level of of mentorship. Not it wasn't just one person. It was all of them together. And you you have a role to play in that. All of us do. Um, And and so just remember that um, and be open to it, open to receiving it and open to giving it. However small, however big, it has an impact. And I, I think that's something we need to remember.
2: My seven Black fathers, Will Jawando, wow, what a gift this is to us. And what a gift it is that you would spend some of your, your time and your schedule. You're in, you're in high demand for you to come on this uh, little old podcast called Pass the Mic. It means so much to us. And uh, thank you. Thank you for writing so vulnerably and personally. And uh, it was healing and loving for me. It felt like a, a love letter. Um, to me personally. So thank you, sir. Thank you for this.
1: Thank you, Tyler, man. It means a lot and uh, really appreciate again, what you guys are doing for our community. And, And it was an honor to be on. So look forward to staying in touch.